Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Transatlanticist at the America Centrum in Hamburg. As always, I am your host, Andrew Sola. Fifty years ago, during the night of the 20th of August, 1968, a joint force of about 200,000 soldiers and 2,000 tanks from the Soviet Union, Bulgaria, Hungary, and Poland invaded Czechoslovakia to bring a shuddering halt to the Prague Spring. The Prague Spring is the term used to describe the short period of democratization, liberalization, and decentralization implemented by the reformist communist leader Alexander Dubček from January through August of 1968. The Soviet-led invasion, however, put an end to his reforms, and it also effectively ended the Prague Spring. There was no organized military opposition to the invasion and subsequent occupation, although there were many acts of resistance, which we will learn about shortly. In April of 1969, nine months after the invasion, Dubček was removed from office. His successor, Gustav Hushak, reversed most of the reforms that Dubček had implemented, and Czechoslovakia remained firmly under Soviet control for 25 more years, until the Velvet Revolution of 1993 saw the Czechoslovakian people peacefully overthrow the Communist Party. And it is the people of Czechoslovakia, the average, everyday people of Czechoslovakia, that we will discuss today. We will look at the trials and tribulations, the hopes and fears, the strategies of submission and resistance to Communist rule, here with me today to help us understand the importance of the Prague Spring in European history is a fantastic author and academic and expert on Czechoslovakian history, Dr. Thomas Murphy. Welcome, Dr. Murphy. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Dr. Murphy attended the Catholic University of America, where he took a BA in history and a master's degree in politics. He studied French language, culture, and history at the university, and you'll have to help me pronounce the name of the university, Dr. Murphy. <laughs> the University de Pau et le Pays d'Alleur. And that was indeed in France from 1993 to 1994. Thank you. He then received his PhD in American and Modern European History from the University of Illinois in Chicago in 1997. Dr. Murphy has taught university for over 26 years at the University of Illinois, Chicago, at Presov University in Slovakia, and since 1999 at the University of Maryland in Europe. He is the author of the book, A Land Without Castles, The Changing Image of America in Europe from 1780 to 1830, published by Roman Littlefield in 2001. His brand new book, Hot Off the Presses, is called Czechoslovakia Behind the Iron Curtain, published by McFarland in 2018. I read the book this week, and it's really a cracking read, which I highly recommend. It paints a very clear picture of the life of ordinary Czechs and Slovaks throughout the period of communist rule. It's both a fascinating and also a fun read, because it reveals what so many historical books lack— insight into how normal people think and live. For example, the numerous sarcastic, ironic, and black jokes of the time in Czechoslovakia are quite revealing. I'll just relate one joke here. The Czechoslovakian Communist Party has just held its annual raffle. The first prize is a one-week vacation in the Soviet Union. The second prize is a two-week vacation in the Soviet Union. 
anyway, a number of wonderful jokes abound, and they really give us a sense of, of how people dealt with some of the complexities and contradictions of life inside communist Czechoslovakia. But let's get started. Enough from me. Let's talk a little bit about the period before, during, and after the Prague Spring. So, Dr. Murphy, could you please paint us a picture of Czechoslovakia before Dubček announced his reforms, and then take us to the reforms, and then talk a little bit about the invasion and its aftermath? Okay, well, that, uh, that is a, a very good question, and it's always difficult to arrive at a starting point, because the starting point could be we could go back to 1939 and the Munich Accords. We could look at the issue of collaboration during World War II. We could even go as far back as the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Finding a starting point is difficult, but it might be best in this case to start in 1948, where the communist regime came into being. And, I, and I'm using that uh, as a very carefully worded phrase, because the conventional wisdom is that the communists came to power in Czechoslovakia in a coup, that they took power, they seized power. That's one interpretation, but it isn't necessarily the only one. Um, the president at the time, Edward Benish, made several political miscalculations that resulted in the resignation of non-communist and non-socialist members of uh, his cabinet that allowed the communists to, in that case, uh, take control. So the, the, the whole issue of how Czechoslovakia became a communist country is in itself up for debate. What is less in doubt is what followed. The 1950s were a brutal decade uh, in Czechoslovakia and throughout Eastern Europe, especially the early part of the 1950s, because Joseph Stalin was trying to consolidate his power uh, over the different states and placing various um, pressure points on Czechoslovakia, East Germany, and other countries. Uh, there were the infamous Slansky trials in the early 50s in Czechoslovakia that resulted in a whole series of executions and long jail sentences for prominent politicians. Stalin died in 1953, and shortly thereafter, Clement Gottwald, the president of Czechoslovakia, died. From 1953 onward, there was a period of relative relaxation as the regime was adjusting to the post-Stalinist period. Some politicians were rehabilitated, Certain restrictions were lifted or relaxed, and a, a relative prosperity uh, by the late 50s and early 60s began to take place in Czechoslovakia. Keep in mind that before World War II, Czechoslovakia was one of the most industrialized states in Europe, and uh, they were not a, a, a backwater but even that is a complicated question because Czechoslovakia is and was industrialized in the West, but much less so in the Slovak territories in the East. Now, by the early 1960s, the communist world was already a little bit splintered. Of course, Yugoslavia had broken with Stalin, and uh, Joseph Tito used to uh, joke that uh, it was just a matter of time before Stalin would kill him. <laughs> probably was more, probably had more than a grain of truth to it. Albania had broken with the Soviet Union by the early 1960s. So even uh, five, six years, seven years before the Prague Spring, there were some cracks in the edifice that had been there for, for some time. Uh, you will recall that even in 1968, Romania did not join the Warsaw Pact troops in the invasion of Czechoslovakia. They thought that it was unbecoming of a socialist nation to invade another socialist nation. So that by the early uh, 1960s, there is a relative period of prosperity and uh, relaxation of uh, previous strictures. Uh, this led to a push for continued reform. One of the things I want to point out is that before Dubček took the stage, there was a relative, relatively high level of support for the Czechoslovak Communist Party within Czechoslovakia, and, and the polling data bears that out. 
Now, that's not to say that everything was fine, but I think it is accurate to say that the regime was more or less bringing home the bacon and uh, taking care of the country in a material sense. Well, let's talk a little bit about Dubček now. So Dubček comes to power. Why and how? Well, in the first, in the first place, Dubček, Alexander Dubček, was a little-known politician, and interestingly, he was a Slovak. For your listeners, Czechoslovakia had always been uh, really two distinct, at least two distinct nations. One could argue even three or four. Uh, the Slovak lands and the Czech lands are very, very different from each other. Czech, Czechoslovakia was industrialized in the Czech lands, much less so in the Slovak territories. The Czechs were Protestants, by and large. The Slovaks were Catholic, and uh, deeply Catholic. The Czech lands were more urban. Slovak territories were more rural. Slovakia had a relationship with Hungary and a history with the Hungarian border that the Czechs did not have. The Czechs were more concerned about the Germans uh, to the West. Uh, the Slovaks also had a very large uh, Roma or gypsy population. Now, the Czechs also had uh, a gypsy population, but much smaller than Slovakia. To this day, Slovakia has the highest concentration of gypsies per capita in Europe. They're more commonly called Roma at this time. So Dubček was a good candidate in the sense that he uh, was coming from a land, Slovakia, that had always been perceived by Czechs and by the, and also by other Slovaks as the, the underdog, as the, the secondary, the stepbrother to Prague. And he was seen as someone who could be invaluable uh, in bringing the, the two sections of the country together. There's another thing about Dubček. He was very low-key, uh, very unassuming, uh, very much a people's politician. He was known for walking down, even as, as uh, uh, president and head of the Presidium, he was known as a, a politician who would walk down the streets, walk into stores, walk into restaurants and bars with no fear uh, and no, no elitism whatsoever. Further, he was very much committed to Russia. Uh, Dubček had studied in Russia. He spoke fluent Russian. And he'd spent a good amount of time in Moscow. So this was not a, a radical, uh, rabid reformer. This was a very pragmatic politician who tried to come in and make several basic, rudimentary, pragmatic changes. And what were some of those changes? First, there was the issue of the Slovaks. Uh, Slovakia had always pushed for autonomy. In fact, during World War II, Adolf Hitler uh, and the Third Reich offered the, the Slovaks independence in return for their obedience, and they obliged. So a certain amount of autonomy within Czechoslovakia for the Slovaks uh, was one move that Dubček made to try to placate Slovaks. Secondly, there was the effort to try to reduce or revoke uh, censorship. Censorship was a phenomenon in Czechoslovakia that was cyclical. Sometimes it was enforced very strictly, and other times the pressure was released. And Dubček tried to, to remove some of the uglier aspects of censorship. Uh, there was also the introduction of uh, at least the tolerance for uh, some private economic initiatives. Now, these had existed in Czechoslovakia already but there was an effort to encourage that initiative. And then finally, the ability for Czechs and Slovaks to travel was loosened. And of course, this was tightened up severely after the Russian invasion. And let's discuss the Russian invasion now. So as you write in your book, the Soviets gave a chance to Dubček and his leadership team to negotiate their way out of this reform movement. And obviously those negotiations did not go well because the Soviets and their allies decided to invade. So could you talk a little bit about that period right before the invasion when Dubček was given the opportunity to negotiate? And, and if, yes. if we even know why those negotiations failed. Well, it's interesting because in, in a sense, the Russians did a bit of an about-face. Before Dubček's ascension, 
there was uh, a leader by the name of Novotny. Novotny had been a prosecutor during the Slansky trials of the 50s, so he wasn't particularly well-liked. He was a hardcore, old-fashioned Stalinist communist, and his regime had become increasingly unpopular. He appealed to Brezhnev to come to Czechoslovakia and try to shore up his regime. And famously, Brezhnev said, this is your business. This is your business. You Czechs and you Slovaks, you work it out yourselves. And in fact, Dubček was very successful at replacing uh, Novotny. Now, before the invasion, some weeks before the invasion, Dubček and some of his advisors were summoned to a little town uh, in Slovakia that's just on the Ukrainian border. I've been there. It's a little village. It's really not much more than a village called Chernenatisu. And in Chernenatisu, there was an old train carriage. And Brezhnev and Dubček and several others met in that train carriage. Very interesting symbolism, I think. And Dubček explained that he was loyal to Russia, loyal to the Communist Party, and that he had certain changes that he wished to make that he thought would actually improve the scope of socialism. And I believe he was sincere. Well, he got a very cool reception from, uh, from Brezhnev and the other Russian officials. Uh, so the meeting broke off, and it wasn't long thereafter that the Warsaw Pact states planned exercises on the Czechoslovak border. And then, of course, the rest is history. The evening of August 20th, the tanks rolled in. Indeed. So the tanks roll in, and the Czechoslovak army is confined to barracks, and there was indeed no organized military opposition from within Czechoslovakia. But there were, of course, acts of resistance from the lighthearted to the more extreme. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the period during the occupation, the first days and weeks after the occupation, how the Czechoslovak people attempted to resist the Soviet invasion? Yes. I think the, a good place to start is to note that Dubček was more or less kidnapped, uh, along with uh, some of the top officials in the Reform Communist Party, and he was taken to Moscow, where he fully expected to be executed. Uh, one has to remember that 12 years earlier, 1956, uh, the uh, the leader of uh, the Hungarian leader Imri Nadje was uh, similarly overthrown with Russian influence and executed. And Dubček expected the same fate. There's a famous story of Dubček going on Czechoslovak radio from Moscow and speaking to the Czechoslovak people shortly after the invasion. And apparently his voice, I've, I've heard the recording, his voice is just shaking. You can, you can tell he's trying to maintain a good face, but he's absolutely terrified. He and his colleagues were asked to sign a declaration that the Russians had been invited to invade as a way of creating legitimacy for the well, but the Russians would not even call an invasion. They'd call a protective measure, uh, a way of saving socialism and maintaining the, the unity of the Eastern Bloc. Now, getting back to your question, what were some of the reactions? You know, well, they might surprise you, uh, especially uh, you know, one coming from a Western perspective. There was tremendous disillusionment. Uh, I mean, these were the Russians. These, these were the friends of Czechoslovakia. They had liberated most of Czechoslovakia at huge cost uh, just a few years earlier. And there was a tremendous feeling of confusion and betrayal. Uh, in fact, it went so far as to some believing that it was an American conspiracy, that Lyndon Johnson had conspired with Brezhnev to allow this to happen. Now, it was fantastic to... to uh, to think such things, but people did. Uh, there was one story that uh, one of my uh, interviewees told me. He was living in a southern, east, southeastern Slovak village, and the Hungarian troops, of course, came up through the south from Hungary. 
And the people greeted the Hungarians as liberators in the sense that they were going to fighting against the Russians to liberate Czechoslovakia, which is, again, hard to imagine. But their belief was, we don't understand. These are our brothers. So once it began to sink in that, in fact, the Russians were coming in, and there's always uh, this standard narrative that, that it was Prague that was invaded. No, it was Czechoslovakia that was invaded. And the tanks rolled in from the south, from the north, from the east, and they rolled all the way to Prague. Prague's a long way from, from the Ukraine. <laughs> and once it began to skin what was going on, then came the questions of how to resist. The first issue was what not to do. And that was don't antagonize the Russians. Don't give them an excuse for a slaughter. Use Cyrillic language when you wish to send a message to the Russians. But when you wish to communicate with each other, use the Latin alphabet. Secondly, take street signs. And this was done in Prague and it was done in, in other large cities. Street signs were removed, so the Russian troops didn't know where they were, and their maps were of no use to them. There was a story of a, a mountain town. Uh, there's a mountain pass in eastern Slovakia called Branisko, and all the street signs had been taken down, and one of the Russian tanks uh, inadvertently took a, a very difficult mountain pass and actually went off a cliff. So there was a tremendous uh, campaign, although only, I would say, really individualistic and only partially organized, uh, to confuse and confound the Russians. And here's something that might surprise you. Many of my interviewees mentioned to me that the Russian troops didn't know they were in Czechoslovakia. That is fascinating. That they had not been told. Now, one can surmise why that might be. They were, they were simply doing it, but they didn't know where they were or what, they, what and how they were doing it. Now, of course, some of the more severe forms of protest included the famous student, Jan Palak, who couldn't have been more than 21 or 22, and he walked into the center of Wenzela Square in Prague, sat down, and lit himself on fire as a means of protesting the Russian invasion. So there were many, many acts of bravery and defiance, use of passive-aggressive measures, uh, unwillingness to cooperate. There were many acts of bravery, both individual and group, although many of them were had little, if any, organization that went into them. Many Czechs and Slovaks spoke Russian. It was the most uh, common spoken foreign language in Czechoslovakia. And many of them refused to do it or pleaded in ignorance with the Russian troops. Very tellingly, the Russian troops were usually kept away from the people uh, for their own safety. Uh, Russian troops were kept out of villages, and when they were cloistered in cities, they were kept out of sight. So the, the presence, their presence was known, but it wasn't always evident. Very interesting. So the Soviet troops ended up staying for over 20 years, is that correct? That's right. They, they never left. Let's move on to the period, so after the aftermath of the invasion. So now we get to this period of normalization, as you write about in your book. The reform period, the Prague Spring is over. Very quickly, can you just summarize the next roughly 25 years before the Velvet Revolution brought an end to communist rule? The invasion of, of 1968 is often referred to as the first step toward the revolution of 1989. Uh, there was enormous disillusionment. There was emigration, although a surprisingly small number of Czechs and Slovaks left immediately after the 68 revolution. And of course, within a few months, the borders sealed and any further movement out of the country wasn't possible. Dubček was kept power for the time being. I think that the Russians and some of the more orthodox Czech leaders realized that to remove Dubček might have caused all hell to break. So he was kept in power, at least nominally, for a period after the invasion. And when the time was right, he was replaced by Gustav Husak. Now, Husak uh, is an interesting character who was 
actually in the reform camp originally, but who ended up towing the line for the Russians and ended up becoming a rather orthodox communist himself. Once Husak came into power, began almost immediately a concerted effort to, for lack of a better term, buy off the Czech population. Of course, when I use the term Czech, I'm, I mean Czechs and Slovaks. The idea was that if, if the population would cease its political activism, that the regime would reward the population with material comfort and a good standard of living. And in fact, this program uh, of norm economic or material normalization uh, was quite successful. As uh, Czechs and Slovaks enjoyed a fairly high standard of living in the 60s and into the 1970s. Uh, and it was in intentionally administered by the regime as a means of, uh, shall we say, economic stimulus to pacify uh, the population. Really interesting. I think one of the biggest lessons I learned from your book, and, and, and you write about this quite a lot, people do have misconceptions of the communist period. One is that we lump all Eastern Bloc countries together. And it was quite interesting to, to read about how, how industrialized and how wealthy Czechoslovakia was in comparison to many of the other Eastern Bloc countries. That's very true that uh, going back to really the turn of the century, Slovakia, even before its existence, the, the, the territories, uh, the Czech territories were very early industrialized. In fact, to this day, there's a tremendous debate among Czechs and Slovak, Slovaks as to whether they are Central Europeans or Eastern Europeans. Uh, Czechs do not take well to being called Eastern Europeans. They see themselves as Central Europeans. And, and many Slovaks do as well. Um, I think it's important also to realize that going back to the Austro-Hungarian period, that there were tremendous clashes between nationalisms in this region, and that for many years communism was able to paper over the nationalist differences, but they were always there. And it was just a matter of time before they reasserted themselves. So we have a nice, clear, overall picture of the historical events surrounding the Prague Spring. But let's go into depth into your own specific research. And I'd like to start by learning more about your personal interest in the topic. So what sparked your interest in Czechoslovakian history? And why do you choose to focus on the lives of ordinary people under communist rule in your academic research? Well... I should start by saying I appreciated your introduction at the start of the interview, uh, uh, describing me as an expert on Czechoslovak history, although I would not describe myself that way. Uh, my training is as an American and European historian who moved to Slovakia in the late 90s and was impressed, moved, and uh, surprised by what I saw there, how different it was. From what I had grown up with, uh, I grew up in Washington, D.C., was politically involved, and uh, we had a certain narrative that we, that we understood about the Cold War. And I began to see that what I had experienced in Slovakia and in the Czech Republic was quite different than the narrative that I'd been brought up on. And as a historian, it got my, my curiosity up, and that's where the topic was born. Now... I am not uh, an oral historian per se, but I did go to school in Chicago and years ago had the good fortune of meeting Studs Terkel at a meeting and uh, talking with him at length about oral history. Of course, oral, Studs Terkel was a very famous oral American oral historian. Uh, I've also had the pleasure of knowing uh, Professor Stoughton Lind, who is a noted oral historian, in the United States as well. So I've always had a tremendous respect for oral history and decided that the best way of getting to the, the essence of understanding communism as a day-to-day -day phenomenon in the mundane sense was through oral history and to talk to the people themselves. Very interesting. You mentioned there that when you arrived in, in the Czech Republic and then Slovakia, 
you were shocked by potentially how different things were from what you were raised to believe. And that's another wonderful lesson from this book. And I really need to emphasize to everyone, they should read this book to understand the vast difference between a Western preconception of life in Czechoslovakia and the reality. And I just want to mention uh, one story you noted when you were teaching in Slovakia. You said your students were always stunned when they learned that American school children are required to recite the Pledge of Allegiance every morning in school. They think that's a terrible overreach by the state to demand allegiance to make us say this. So, so they never had to say such a thing in school every day, and they found it shocking that indeed American school kids are forced to recite this. Yes, that's right. And, 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 and I'll add to that uh, that what was even more surprising was that as an American, I never perceived the Pledge of Allegiance for what it is. I never thought of it as anything involving state indoctrination or loyalty. I just saw it as something that one does. It was natural, in other words. Uh, now, whether whether it's a good idea or a bad idea is up for argument. But my Czech and Slovak students saw it as a blatant, and I think that's the key word, a blatant submission to the state. Now, there was tremendous propaganda uh, in Czechoslovakia, in the press and the political uh, apparatus, but it tended to be a bit more subtle, and often it include omissions. In other words, it would it would it would involve omissions rather than commissions. Uh, and I think for many of the Czech and Slovak students, the Pledge of Allegiance was simply too blatant a form of propaganda. That's really funny. Also, you note in your book that there are a number of other Western misconceptions, of which I learned about so many in the book. I already mentioned that one common misconception was that Czechoslovakian communism was ideologically the same as all other communisms, particularly Soviet communism, but this is flatly untrue. In reality, Czechoslovakian communism was unique, and the typical Western narratives of Eastern Bloc communism should never be applied to Czechoslovakia. And I note there are a number of examples in your book, but could you talk about some of the differences between Czechoslovakian communism and other types? Absolutely. Of course, it, if one looks at it seriously, uh, how could the systems be all alike? Uh, how, how, could, how could we simply remove national culture, history, and, and other differences, uh, of course those things are important. But it's often said that the Americans and the Russians cooperated in the Cold War in one way. They both completely, and for different reasons, distorted the meaning of the word socialism. Okay? And I think there's some truth to that. Now, within Eastern European regimes, there was the role of the Catholic Church that changed the the substance of the regime in Poland, for example. The Russians never stationed troops in Poland. They couldn't. They wouldn't. The church wouldn't have stood for it. In Romania, there was uh, the development of Nicolae Ceausescu, and the principal concern in that country by the mid-60s was population. Uh, Romania has the largest uh, numerical population of Roma, uh, in Europe. And, for example, uh, his regime ab abolished abortion in 1966 to, to further the population. Yugoslavia uh, tried to find a middle way between East and West, and Tito's regime was considered a bit more, shall we say, liberal, a bit more uh, tolerant than many other communist regimes. The Yugoslav dinar was considered to be hard currency in Eastern Europe <laughs> during the Cold War. And then, of course, there was Albania, which was a bit of an outlier, and for its own reasons, decided to simply remove itself uh, from the other communist regimes of Eastern Europe and went its own way. So there are enormous differences between regimes that related to the national history, national characteristics, and culture of each of the countries. Absolutely. But I do actually want to now go to some of the preconceptions that the West had about living in a communist country with secret police and requirements of loyalty oaths and requirements to join the Communist Party. Your book is fascinating because it discusses what you call the pragmatism of staying under the radar, 
which you've also called after the Prague Spring, the normalization bargain. So the Czechoslovak people had to take complex strategies in order to live without harassment or punishment from the police or the party. Sometimes for a married couple, one person in the marriage should join the party, for example, so the other person would be protected, but oftentimes both would not join. If you were asked to join the party, for example, and you did not want to join, you had to figure out a creative way to have that offer to join withdrawn. Because if you just said, I don't want to join the party, that would lead to repercussions. Religion was another issue. People had to hide their religious beliefs in order to avoid punishment. And I just want to read one quotation from one of your interviewees about the normalization bargain. He says, All the citizen needs to do, and this is after the Prague Spring, after the period of normalization, which meant a return to more hardcore communism. All the citizen needed to do was to come to terms with the very few basic notions that there is only one party of government, that there is only one truth, that everything belongs to the state, which is also the sole employer, that the individual's fate rests on the favor of the state, that the world is divided into friends and foes, that assent is rewarded, descent is penalized, that the state does not require the entire person, just that part that projects above the surface of public life. And if this part accepts the sole truth, then the individual may do what he or she likes in the private sphere. And that's a, such a wonderful comment. Can you uh, gloss that for me, please? Yes, I, I think that that, uh, that is exactly correct. And it, it distinguishes the, the Czechoslovak communist system from some of the even more orthodox systems where one was, was monitored at all levels of life. But in Czechoslovakia, the, there was a tension because, first of all, to be a party member was a privilege, not a right. Most people in Czechoslovakia were not party members, and it was difficult to become a party member. So there was no imposition of, of party membership. However, party membership conferred all kinds of privileges onto a family, educational privileges, housing privileges, social privileges, income. And this created a, created a dilemma for many families who felt that they might not wish to be associated with the Communist Party, but that for the sake of their children and uh, their the children's education, it might not be a bad idea to at least have one member of the family join up. And, and as you pointed out, that was often the, the wife joining the uh, the Communist Party. Now, as far as living beneath the radar, one could live a, a fairly comfortable life in Czechoslovakia in the early 70s with a good job, a state-provided apartment, a, a little chata, as they called them, a little country home. One could be quite comfortable if one kept their head down and didn't become too involved in either politics or in church matters. Now, one could go to church, but there were caveats. A state employee had to be very careful about going to church because that was a conflict of interest and they would be watched. And oftentimes the priests themselves were informants. That was another trade-off. The priests were allowed to function, the churches remained open, but they watched who attended. Uh, and so as you can see, there was a, it was a, what's the term that one uses? Push-pull. There were things that could push people away from the Communist Party, pull them toward it, and one could live a benign existence quite easily by simply removing themselves from any semblance of association with the Communist Party. Václav Havel used to call these people little checks, and it was not a positive term. The idea was the person who has removed themselves from the public sphere, from any sort of political responsibility, and is simply immerse themselves in their own little individualistic material lives, which is exactly what the normalization regime wanted. Can you just explain to our audience again who Václav Havel was? Václav Havel was a, 
uh, was from a middle-class uh, Czech family, and he uh, was denied university admission because his family was considered to be uh, too bourgeois. This happened a lot, that uh, uh, individuals from not even prominent families, but middle-class families would be denied seats at university in favor of working-class students. He went on to become a very, uh, very talented playwright and, uh, and an opposition uh, political figure. He was jailed by the regime, and then later on in his career, after the Velvet Revolution, went on to become the president of the Czech Republic. So we take his views seriously when he's describing Czechoslovak life. And I, and I do want to stay on this topic because it's one of the more fascinating topics for me coming from a moral philosophy perspective. After the invasion, which ended the Prague Spring, uh, one of your interviewees said people had to develop a new way of communicating, a sort of double speak or a double language. And I'll just read this passage. The invasion may have actually been good for the people in one respect. The population became smarter. By that, I mean that we learned the differences between appearances and reality, between political statements and the realities of power and domination. As a result, we learned not to be literal and to understand that reality had many levels. Language was a tool that could be used at a variety of these levels for multiple purposes. We learned to use language in a very complex double manner, and this helped to provoke thinking among the people. It made us smarter. So the way I read this, it's like the more the more you have to live this double life of staying under the radar, the more you need a complex and nuanced language to describe what you're really thinking, because you can never say what you really think unless you get in trouble. Yes, I, I think that's, uh, that's, that's very well put. And it was certainly my experience in the classroom in Czechoslovakia that those communication tendencies exist to this day. Czechs and Slovaks feel a, a distinct lack of trust toward the West. They feel that they were betrayed in 1939 when the Sudetenland was handed over to Germany, to Nazi Germany. They saw that in 1956, during the Hungarian Revolution, that the Americans and the West did nothing. And in 1968, when they were undergoing their own invasion with the Russians and the Warsaw Pact nations, nobody did anything aside from spouting hollow rhetoric. So there's a tremendous lack of trust. I think this is one of the reasons why some of the Eastern Bloc countries are in, a bit ambivalent about NATO today, because they, they've always had an ambivalence about, about whether the West really cares about their security. So this idea of doublespeak uh, is really quite fascinating to me. It's almost like a, you know, the word veteran comes from one who has experience experience, although we usually use it in the sense of combat experience, but, but in the more general uh, sense, it means one who has the benefit of experience. They, the Czechs and Slovaks had been lied to for years. They'd been manipulated. Long after the Russian invasion of 1968, they were told that the Czech uh, hierarchy had invited the Russians. This was not true, and it's been since, uh, since proven not to be true. And they developed critical thinking. They developed the capacity for analytical expression. They're very discerning people. Uh, I used to notice that in my classroom. Uh, for example, in the, under the old communist regime, nobody was expected to fail and nobody was expected to excel. So in a classroom, that meant that nobody was able, no one was encouraged to be a superstar and nobody was expected to be a dunce. Uh, this created big problems for me as a teacher because uh, students often helped each other. Now, in the West, we would call that cheating. But for Czechs and Slovaks, it was assisted learning. Mm -hmm. uh, we, don't, we don't want anyone to fail, so we will help them along. It's you know, comrades in arms. And they were remarkably good at it. Some of the techniques would put my American <laughs> students to shame. <laughs> well, let's not share any of those with the rest of the world. <laughs> But the problem, Havel said that the, basically there is a moral problem with this double speak of living under the radar, the pragmatism of having your good life with your country home in Czechoslovakia. 
because it meant that you had to live as a hypocrite. So how, how does that argument go down these days? Well, what do people think of that? Right. How about, there was some talk about a, a South African style truth commission in 1989, where those accountable for the injustice of the communist period should be brought to justice. And Havel argued strenuously that. He also argued against the banning of the Communist Party after 1989. And the reason he did that is that he believed that, and this goes to the heart of your question, he believed that the guilt and uh, the culpability under the communist regime was shared by everyone in the society those who oppressed and those who failed to say anything about it. So he felt that the guilt went from the top to the bottom and that those who retreated during normalization to a comfortable material life were very guilty of helping perpetuate uh, a loathsome regime. Fascinating. Let's move on now and discuss the advantages and disadvantage of, of communism and capitalism in the popular memory of Czechs and Slovaks today. Of course, the Velvet Revolution happened, and now both the Czech Republic and Slovakia are part of the free market, hee-haw capitalism, democracy of the West and the EU. So, what I've noticed in, in, in your book is it's many Czechs and Slovaks have a similar idea to that of ostalgia, this idea of nostalgia for the East, which the Germans have this great word for, ostalgia. Mm. They reflect back on the communist period, and they see both advantages and disadvantages. So, and here is something that one of your interviewees said. Socialism had two faces. It did not represent freedom, but it did provide some social and material benefit. The key was to learn to live under the radar where one could and actually benefit from the system. Those who didn't experienced problems. And yet, they had this idea of solidarity. And now, in the post-communist times, there is no solidarity anymore, or people feel like there is no solidarity. Another formulation from your book is that in communist times, people thought they were free, but they didn't actually know what freedom was. After the Velvet Revolution, people say we are too free, and we've lost all of our social solidarity. There is a total lack of social solidarity and social cohesion as well. So do you want to talk about this push and pull, as you said earlier, about how people think back to the communist days, the advantages and disadvantages of communism and capitalism? Yes, this, uh, this, in fact, I find, for me personally, to be one of the most interesting phenomena of the book. And that is uh, not only the, the phenomenon of memory and how things are remembered, but also this, this continued ambiguity uh, among many of my interviewees that they would not want to go back to that period. But capitalism, or at least Czech-style capitalism, introduced something ugly. There were advantages, of course, and many disadvantages, but that something was lost that was very precious, something hard to describe. And when you, when you talk to a Czech or a Slovak who's maybe 50, 55 years old, they miss the closeness to nature, they miss the simplicity, uh, the lack of crime, and the fact that a four-year-old could be sent out you know, on the streets to, to get some milk at the store and not worry about uh, any problems, that a 10-year-old that a could, could manage a herd of cows, that uh, there was tremendous community, a community in the sense that nobody was rich, but nobody was desperately poor. And, of course, Czechs and Slovaks fight like uh, you know, uh, cats and dogs amongst themselves. So let's not overestimate the uh, the emphasis on community. But in terms of a society that functioned well enough uh, and that was simple, uh, they they feel a bit disoriented and, and confused by events since 1989. Remember that these are people who lived under, in very short order, Austrian rule, Hungarian rule. 
<laughs> Nazi occupation, rigorous communist uh, authoritarian rule, and then whatever came to pass. So capitalism is a relatively new phenomenon for them, and the the means by which the economy shifted from socialist to capitalist benefited some people hugely, and it benefited most people not at all. So you do hear that the line, we didn't know that we were not free, which is a strange thing to say. And you also hear that we are too free now. Uh, however, let's not confuse freedom with an American conception of freedom. There was no, and I wanted to point this out earlier, we should remember that there was not a tremendous amount of envy toward the United States in the 60s and 70s. The United States was seen as being racially bereft. There was the Vietnam War, which was seen as an unjust imperial war. And the U.S. violence rates were frightening to Central and Eastern Europeans. Nevertheless, the Americans stopped talking about freedom. And I think many Czechs and Slovaks looked at this and said, we don't really want, if that's freedom, that's not what we want. And I think many of them today see the social safety net is no longer there. Pensioners are worried about uh, about uh, their standard of living. They're free, but as, as one author once said, they're, they're also free to starve. Indeed. There's a, another formulation from one interviewee in your book, which is rather apathetic. This person sees no real difference at the, at the fundamental level between the communist time and the capitalist time. He says, We have the same kind of freedom that we always had. You can complain, but it doesn't do any good if you don't have any money or the right connections. And it's hard to get any justice. Uh, that struck me as being very interesting, that basic social injustices, however formulated, still exist. When I was in initially in eastern Slovakia in 97, 98, there were American English newspapers that began to pop up. And the language that they used was always human rights. It was always uh, democratization and the public sphere and uh, social equality and what have you. And, and so th that was the narrative. These same newspapers still exist today, and they are nothing but organs for the Western business communities in, Czech, in the Czech and Slovak republics. And I can't help but think that that was the point all along, to try to open up markets. And the way to do it, of course, was through the language of human rights and democracy and pluralism. But that what might have really been going on was uh, the opening up of free enterprise and markets. And once that was achieved, the, uh, the human rights narrative just sort of went away. Fascinating. Dr. Murphy, in your research, you have shown that you very much do understand a wide range of thinking and a broad understanding of how Czechs and Slovaks think. So I'd like you to turn your brain and your experience and knowledge to recent developments in Central Europe. On this show during the past couple of months, my guests and I have often discussed the resurgence of nationalism in both Europe and the U.S. And I think it's fair to say that a lot of right-wing populist and nationalist sentiments are coming out of Central Europe and I'm thinking specifically of the conservative PIS party in Poland, the right-wing parties of the Czech Republic and Slovakia, and of course the far-right leader of Hungary now, Viktor Orban. So, based on the research you've done, what do you think is going on in Eastern Europe, and does your research on the lives of Czechs and Slovaks during the communist era help us to shed some light on what's happening with the political situation today? in the Czech Republic and Slovakia? That is a very deep question. and We could talk about that for a long time. I think, first of all, that, as I said at the beginning of our conversation, the old question of nationalism and national identity never went away. Communism papered over it, but it never went away. And it's important to recall that in Eastern Europe, there's a historical hierarchy with countries, okay? The, the Hungarians ruled the Slovaks, and the Slovaks know that. The Czechs always had a bit of 
hierarchy on the Slovaks as well. Poland is a different matter. The Germans are something else. But the point is that there is a social hierarchy, and that has always existed, and it has contributed to a number of uh, political developments, including nationalist movements, to reassert power or to establish identity. One of of the issues that I found in Slovakia was the issue of what is a Slovak? Who are they? Are they extensions of the Czechs? What does it mean to be a Slovak? What does the Slovak language represent? I think a lot of the modern-day developments in the region are actually non-ideological. I think they're much more tribal, uh, especially within the construct of the European Union. You mentioned Viktor Orban in, in Hungary. Orban was at one point a liberal politician who has increasingly taken on a far-right posture. Now, how does this intersect with nationalism, populism and nationalism? Well, there are populations of Hungarians in Romania, in Slovakia, okay, and elsewhere. And using Hungary and Viktor Orban as an example, there are Hungarian people large numbers of them, who live in Slovakia, who live in Ukraine, who live in Romania, and elsewhere. And there has been a concerted effort by this regime to try to reach out to those ethnic Hungarians for allegiance, and thereby increase the power of the Hungarian state within the construct of the European Union. And it's created all kinds of headaches for the Romanians, for example, and the Slovaks, because there has always been an uneasy peace between Slovaks and Hungarians within the Slovak Republic. And this is based on historical considerations that go back to the Austro-Hungarian regime. So I think it's important not to see Eastern Europe in ideological terms, but more in ethnic national terms. There is also the question of Roma within Eastern Europe. Now, Eastern Europe, compared to the West, is very ethnically and racially homogeneous. I think this is one of the reasons why you find so so much opposition in Eastern Europe to the taking in of immigrants from Syria or from Iraq or Afghanistan. They simply don't have much experience with people who don't look like them. And the one group that they do have experience with are the Roma those who came from the Punjab region of India centuries ago. And those people have been treated horrifically in recent decades and over over the history of the Czech and Slovak republics. And they are associated with the other, with outsiders and with people who are not like them. So let's sum up here. What are some of the most important lessons Westerners should learn about themselves and the relationship with Central and Eastern Europe as a consequence of all of the research you've done on the subject? What are some of the most important lessons we should be taking away? Well, I think there's a tendency in any country to be rather egocentric and to assume that one's values extend to others. In, in the case of the West, or in my experience, the United States and Czechoslovakia, there are some significant cultural, political, and historical differences that were never acknowledged during the Cold War, and I, they might not have been realized. And the issue of the other is something that I talk about extensively in my book. It's the idea of creating an image, usually false or largely false, but perhaps based on an element of truth, to discredit one's opponents, to delegitimize another. Uh, We see uh, the word terrorism used this way today, or in the United States, fake news. It's simply, it's a shorthand for tearing someone down without providing any actual evidence for it. During the Cold War, the buzzword was communism, communist. And this was used uh, domestically and in a foreign policy context to delegitimize uh, individuals, movements, parties. And I think that my research has shown me that one needs to think a bit more precisely 
about these kinds of sweeping generalizations, that what was a communist in Czechoslovakia or Romania or Bulgaria or Eastern Germany or anywhere else, uh, not only differed country to country, but it differed at different times within history, the histories of those individual countries. The communist system of Czechoslovakia in 1952 was very different from 1959, 1967, 1971, and certainly 1985. The system ebbed and flowed. Sometimes it functioned more or less, other times it didn't. And when the contradictions became too great to hide, the system collapsed. And it collapsed very quickly, very peacefully, uh, and very surprisingly. Keep in mind, the West did not anticipate 1989. No, indeed not. Well, with that, we're going to have to call it a day on this wonderful discussion of Czechoslovakia behind the curtain, published by McFarland just in the last week or so. Dr. Murphy, that was a fascinating discussion. I think our audience knows a lot more about Czechoslovakian history now than we did before, so I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Dr. Murphy. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure to be here today. And thank you for listening to the 10th episode of The Transatlanticist. If you enjoy the show, please support us by subscribing for free with iTunes, TuneIn, or your podcast provider. Also, please be so kind as to give us a five-star rating and review. Your reviews really help us to keep the show going, so please give us that review. If you would like to provide comments, suggest topics, or recommend guests, I'd love to hear from you. Please send me an email at asola at americacentrum.de. And once again, thanks for listening. Thank you.